0: are many, many boys walking around in men's bodies in the world, and some of them are running whole countries, uh, and, and, you know, the, the sort of um, men who never grew up.
1: G'day, and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in and conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Steve Bidolf is one of Australia's leading authors on parenting. He's worked as a child and family psychologist for over 30 years and written a series of best-selling books, including Raising Boys, Raising Girls, The New Manhood, The Making of Love and The Secret of Happy Children. In 2000, he was voted Australian Father of the Year and received an AM three years ago. He lives in Tasmania and speaks regularly about parenting and advocates a more connected form of parenting. Steve, thanks so much for joining me today on the Good Life Podcast.
0: It's great to talk to you, Andrew, and to anyone who's listening. Uh, great to be here.
1: Now, you were born in Saltburn, a town on the east coast of England. Tell us about your own childhood.
0: Yes. Well, um, Saltburn is in, in, on the edge of what's called the Side, and so it's very contradictory because on the one side, there's beautiful beaches and um, vistas going off into the distance across the moors and that sort of, um, sort of countryside that you'd see on the Heartbeat show on television. Um, But on the other side was this massive array of chemical factories and steel mills and a lot of poverty and violence, you know, in that background of that part of the world. And so um, it was an interesting place, but as a little child, it was paradise. I just thought it was wonderful. I had relatives living, you know, in every street around us. You'd go to walk to grandmas and walk to your aunties. Um, And my parents were really lovely. And so um, it was a, a, a bright moment in the um, you know, in the post-war years. And I think um, a good beginning for me in the life that I've led ever since.
1: Now, you're a child of the 1950s. The the poverty, the violence that you spoke about, did that touch your household or was it in something you saw in the households around you? It was, it was um, no, it was something I saw. I, th- I think my
0: mum and dad were both um, very, very caring parents, and um, dad, in particular, he would play with us. He'd play games and teasers and, and laugh and joke. Mum was a little bit more from a slightly more well-off background than dad. Um, and so she was rather tense. And, and and she was very caring. But in those days, people didn't hug their children, Andrew. It's a bit shocking to to realise this today. but But hugging kids was... Hugging anyone almost never happened. And so physical affection wasn't around very much. And I can remember in, when I was in, you know, in my 30s and 40s um, and visiting mum and you'd give her a hug and she'd kind of go very stiff and, and like she just didn't know how to do hugs. And, and we'd tease her and say, mm. no, you know, relax, mum, it's okay, let you enjoy it. And you could tell she did enjoy it. Um, and so I think that matched a change in, in society as a whole, I think. You know, I joke that Red Car was the world, Red Car in Yorkshire, where I lived, was the world capital of negative parenting. <laughs> because um, people, put the, <laughs> people put their kids down just routinely. They would just say, you're, you're, you're an idiot, you're hopeless, you're a waste of space. Um, there was a Yorkshire expression, you're a daft apeth, um, which I thought was some kind of monkey. Um, But it turned out it was a daft, daft, worth, it was a shortened halfpenny worth. Um, And so um, people did, did, yeah, people talk to their kids in a very caustic and destructive sort of a way, even though it wasn't how they really felt. It's just, you know, what they thought Mm. you're supposed to do. Does that make sense, Andrew?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Steve, what led your parents to move to Australia?
0: Oh, well, that was pretty simple. It was that the steel industry there and the coal industry there um, were shutting down and everyone was losing their jobs. And my dad, had an, he had an adventurous spirit. He was a sort of person. He read magazines about, you know, big, hunting, big game hunting in Africa and climbing the, the Rocky Mountains of Canada. And so he was an adventurer and mum was a... Uh, a bit of a scaredy cat, and so and they'd always had this tension in their marriage of dad wanting to go places and do things, and mum just wanting to stay safe. And mm. I, I think that um, the the economic um, downturn tipped the balance in my dad's favour, and so he dragged my mum to Australia. Um, he, even though she was usually the the one who called the shots in our family, she gave him this chance to give us a better life, and I'm so glad that she did. Um, And um, because in those days, um, you know, in Australia, just even you just eat, you know, even what you ate was better for you. You know, there was more food to eat. Um, There was more fruit and and vegetables and, um, of course, sunshine and and swimming on the beach. And so it was a massive improvement over a 1950s Yorkshire childhood. Um, And so it was a a really wonderful thing in our family's life.
1: And then fast-forwarding a little after your arrival in in Australia, uh, uh, how old were you when you first became a parent?
0: Um, Yes, having my kids, look, I've lost track, but I would have been in my mid-30s. We had a a, a son. Our son was born first. Um, Then um, three years later, we had a miscarriage. We had a pregnancy we'd really planned and, and hoped for, and that didn't work out, which knocked us around quite a bit. Um, and it's fact, it was out of that experience that I started working on my book about men. Um, but then a a couple of years later, we had a a little girl. And so, so we've got a boy and a girl now who both, um, adults now. Um, so we were really lucky and, um, and enjoyed parenthood enormously. And, um, and, and of course writing about it, um, we, I never wrote my books from a point of view of an expert, Andrew. Sometimes I get introduced, you know, by someone introducing me as a parenting expert and I always um, correct that because my approach to parenthood is that we're all on the same level. Um, We're all fumbling our way along. And we have to trust our own inner compass about what's right and wrong. And I think experts are a very patronizing concept and sometimes quite damaging because people stop listening to their own judgment. And so I think we've definitely got to think about parenthood. And so my books and my talks, they're aimed to to get people thinking um, and get more conscious of what they're doing. Um, But I always say at the very beginning of the talks, you know, your heart will know. You'll know, if I, what I say is right, it'll feel right to you. And it'll sound right in your in your head, um, it'll confirm you, but it'll, I've never aimed to tell anyone else what to do. Um, and that's, I think the experience of parenthood myself is always a humbling thing. And you're aware of how you're just finding your way. Um, you make mistakes and you think, okay, I won't do that again. And, and that's how you get through. And I think if you have that attitude, um, then um, it generally works out because we are programmed to be parents. It is something we've done for millions of years um, and our heart is usually a really good guide. And so it's more a matter of just listening to those inner signals and getting rid of some of the junk we might have been put onto us by our own um, growing up and the culture around us.
1: But, but parenting is hard. Um, Adam Gopnik had a nice line in New Yorker recently. He said parenting is about accepting limits while insisting on standards. Did you find parenting tough yourself? Look, I think one of the things that made it harder for me, I was in the first part,
0: I was really, really lucky because my wife, Sharon, although she, she came from a violent family and she came from a lot of poverty in her childhood. She was one of five little girls being raised on the cane fields in Queensland. Something happened with her where she kind of, it's one of those miracles that it does happen in our personal story where we have a terrible beginning and somehow we turn that around and become really, really great at doing it because we've experienced the, the absolute opposite. And so she was a, just such a loving and natural mother. Um, and whereas my background, I don't know, Andrew, if you've read this in any of the things you've read about me, but yes. I, I have Asperger's syndrome. Yes. And, so, um, and the main effect of that is a, a, a real lack of um, social intelligence and, and especially when I was younger, just the clueless about how to talk to people. Um, and I was lucky that I trained as a psychologist and then i went and learned how to do psychotherapy which is much more than just psychology you switched from physics i understand yes that's right yes i did the (laughs) usual um aspie thing and and (laughs) something i said i chose physics because it's a really great subject if you can't relate to human beings (laughs) but i think puberty struck and i thought no look i meant I need to be able to talk to girls. And so what can, I, <laughs> what can I study that'll help me with my life goal and switch to psychology, which is just very fortunate. <laughs> yes. And then, but in a, in a nutshell, to answer your question, um, I, I, I um, I'm sure there were plenty of times when my kids just thought, Oh, geez, I wish dad was a bit more normal um, because I, I, I would say the wrong thing or I would do the wrong thing. But luckily um, I was a humble, um, Aspie, and so I would always, i talk to Sharon, Sharon would just give me this look, and I'd sort of start to, I'd go and have a little quiet talk to her afterwards, and we'd figure out, you know, this is how you do it. And I think that's part of the secret with my books, Andrew, is it's like a, um, you know, those books that are written that are called for complete dummies. Um, so you get accountancy for mm-hmm. dummies. I think I was a complete dummy. And so that means that I had to figure it out from the very basics. And so that meant I had to figure out for myself how do you do discipline, or ha- how do you raise a boy, how do you raise a girl, and because I had to figure it out myself, it meant it was easy to put it down on paper, um, and and give it a bit of a, a light-hearted kind of a feeling to it. Um, and so people say things like they say your books are just like you talking; they're they're, they're not pretentious, they're not kind of preachy or formal in the way they're written and and because that's that just the way i am um and so it was it kind of was the wound that turned to gold in a way because um you know i had to learn how to read emotions on people's faces and i had to learn how to converse and and there's a lot of people in this world that it would benefit from thinking a bit before they open their mouths um, and so you know it's not a great disadvantage to have to do that really yeah, but that's enough about me. We should move on, Andrew.
1: <laughs> well, let's move on to uh, some of the insights from your books, uh, uh, which have, we should say, uh, sold more than four million copies, uh, uh, belying the notion that children don't come with instruction manuals because uh, plenty of boys in, in, in this world now do come with uh, in the instruction manual uh, Raising Boys by Steve Biddulph. Um, one of the ideas you have there is uh, uh, that you... Push back against the notion of quality time uh, I sort of think of your approach as being a, a little similar to the military strategists who like to say that quantity has a quality all of its own uh, and, uh, and and you say uh, in, uh, in in one of the editions of your of, of your uh, raising boys that if you if if uh, a dad routinely works a fifty-five to sixty-hour week. Uh, they just won't cut it as a dad. Um, what, what is it about the the quantity of time uh, that really matters?
0: Yes, um, yes. I was I was really laying the law down when I wrote that. That's uh, that's got a, that got. A, I remember that got a lot of men um, really examining their, their lifestyles. Um, and I'm glad I said it because um, you have to talk very straight with men. Um, to get their attention, but yes, the the key of it, Andrew, is that human relating and and getting on and getting close with each other, which is what a family is about. It's not like it's not something that just happens um, quickly. Um, we're we have to get attuned to each other, and so in in a family, ideally, you know, mum and dad get together, uh, you know, when when they come home from work, and. There's a little bit of settling in. Um, if if you pick your child up from school, they don't just immediately tell you how the, how their day was or uh, something they really want to tell you. There's a bit of a, a period, of, sort of like a bit of a warm up, or a, mm-hmm. a spot of a, just a harmonizing it with each other. Um, and so it may be that it takes ten or twenty minutes to really just get back together, um, and before you can have that flow between you where you have a, a comfortable conversation or you can bring up the vulnerable things that are that you're wanting to talk about, but you're not sure if the other person's got time. Um, and so in a nutshell, if you want to put it in a nutshell, if you want to write this on the sky, it would be that love takes time. And now the converse of that is that hurry and hurry is the single thing that characterizes our lives the most today Mm. hurry is the enemy of love. And you can have a, a really loving family, a strong marriage, um, kids that are deeply loved. And if you turn up the speed of that family, that they've got to have a longer commute or they've got to work longer hours or the kids are busy with a whole lot of things and they've taken on too many um, classes or interests or things like that. As you turn the speed up, every relationship every exchange will start to be a little bit out of sync and a little bit not quite satisfactory not quite working out and and you know when you've had a you know you've had a word or two with someone that you that you you love and that you care about there's that feeling in your stomach when you know that didn't quite go right you know there's something bothering them but haven't got time to find out what it is now taken too far what ha- what happens is people start to have arguments and fights. Um, the kids have problems that they haven't felt they can tell you. Um, they get into trouble at school with something that maybe they could have talked to you three months ago. You know, a problem with a friend or some scary thing that's happened to them. And, or, you know, a husband and wife can have a massive blow up, even, you know, separation or divorce, because they just... You know, that they really needed a week away together, you know, two years ago, and they didn't take that. Does, does that sound too extreme, what I'm saying, Andrew, that that could happen just through the effects of rushing?
1: Not at all. Uh, I, my uh, eldest son and I were uh, running a little late this morning. I was dropping him in for an early thing at seven o'clock at school, and because he was running late, he was stressed, and because he was stressed, it took him half the car journey to school to calm down. So I was reflecting after I dropped him that we lost half of of the time that we normally enjoy for conversations, just because the the time together wasn't productive because of the, the rush and the hurry. So it speaks very much to my experience just today, Steve.
0: You're in the thick of parenting, and so you know what I'm talking about.
1: Exactly. You also have a lovely observation about taking every chance you can to interact. Uh, talking to children about your own childhood and how things work and and things they need to know. Uh, I loved it because I'm just so often reminded that uh, my children uh, don't have a sort of basic understanding of the facts facts of the world uh, unless someone gives it to them. So, you know, I discovered the other day my kids had no idea what the Vietnam War was. And why would they? It's not something that would have struck in primary school. Uh, so you know, I gave them a little potted sketch as to what happened in the Vietnam War. Uh, but, but tell us how, how you can do that more effectively.
0: Yes. Well, I think it comes to a, a kind of a general thing that um, and, I'm, and I'm smiling on my end of, of the, the phone because um, the, the Vietnam War was so formative to our generation. It was the first time we learned to to not, to deeply distrust politicians and um, and where we saw our peers you know being taken off and and, and killed or seriously messed up um, and and so it was it was a huge thing in, in the 20th century and yeah. and um, and so the, the 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 general principle is that kids the what what helps them to to turn into into happy fun, well functioning adults. Is to to download huge amounts of um, g- good people, and and to, you know it, what a human being is is they're a bundle of all the good people that they've ever come across, and we pull that together to to make ourselves. Ourself is a kind of a collection of of all the role models that we've been around, hopefully g- good ones, sometimes bad ones, and and so. That means kids have got to have, and this is what, one of the breakthrough things in my teaching about boys, they need hours a day of male teaching. Mm. And, and in, the, in the, for millennia, um, the kids grew up around adults all the time. Um, uncles and dads and granddads and mums and aunties were, they're absolutely Im- immersed in that. And they were always telling stories. They were, you know, they spent all day walking along riverbanks and sitting around campfires all night, and adults told stories all the time. And all of a sudden, when we change this in, in the industrial world, um, the adults disappeared. And w- one of the things we think is causing the problem with girls' mental health at the moment is that the time spent with older women has reduced by 80%. They don't see their aunties, they don't see their grandmas, they still need that input and so what they do, and I'm so interested if people listening to this, you know, check this out in your own experience. They default to the peer group for their um, information about life um, and for the nurture. And, and anyone who's got a teenage daughter will know it's incredibly poignant how those girls will, they'll rally around one of their um, group of girls, 14 or 15, who's having terrible anxiety problems, or it might even be suicidal and her friends will all be doing their very best to support them and, and get them through. Um, but the girls feel very, they're not, they're not well-equipped to do that. Um, and so um, often there's research that when girls talk about problems, you know, if you or I talk about problems, Andrew, generally we feel better for having talked about them. You know, we go and, go and talk to someone if we're worried yeah. about um, when teenage girls talk about problems, they get worse. Um, they, they It kind of bounces between them and the whole group gets more upset. And, and heads, uh, he, um, Headspace, the youth mental health, pr- researched this and they found that the, you need someone outside of that age group who is a circuit breaker. And so a nice, calm grandma who says, yeah, you know, I used to worry about that with, you know, w- with boys when I was your age, but... Um, you know, the good-looking ones are usually the boring ones. <laughs> or or something, uh, something, something very wise from a grandmother's point of view. And, um, and, and so um, that when we're coming right back to where you started about quantity time, it's that hanging around and the, the sort of stuff you do when you're on holidays in a, in a shack where there isn't any television or something. Um, when the kids really find out stuff about mum and dad, Um, and really, um, you get to talk about things that that just don't usually come up. Um, and, um, and and we also really recommend in the, um, in the Raising Boys book, for instance, is that if you've got a teenage boy, go away with some other dads and their sons, um, you know, a camping trip or going to a, a music concert and staying overnight in a big city, something like that. Take about five dads and take all their sons. And so the your son can talk to other dads mm. and and those other dads will have qualities and characteristics that actually might be more what your son is needing to relate to, because when we 're never ever quite the match in you know what our, what our our kids need uh, we 're only part of what they need we won 't have the full full deck if you like um, of of what they need to make their kind of of man um, and so so it's, a, it's got, in the teen years, it's got to be a team effort um, as well.
1: And so many tr- uh, traditional cultures have these rites of passage from Native Americans to Indigenous Australians in which uh, the men take the boys away in the, in the bush when they reach a certain age. Uh, should we be building that sort of a, a rite of passage more into the, the raising of boys in modern Australia? And, and,
0: and girls as well, yes. I Interestingly, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you from my home, but about um, a, a half a mile away is a conference that I've been speaking at um, for the last two days about, um, it's called The Right Journey, and right is spelled R-I-T-E. And The Right Journey is a school program which is happening in probably, I think, 200 schools around Australia. They're mostly um, faith-based schools, but not all of them. And this turns the whole of year nine, um, so so year nine secondary school, into a, a rite of passage year um, where they the kids do activities all through the year, um, culminating in some retreat kind of camps and some sort of climactic kind of events, um, where they're saying, you know, you're going to be pretty much an adult by the end of year nine. You're a young adult, but at the moment you're you're a kid. And there's a difference, there's a a distinct difference in the psychology of a man from the psychology of, of a boy. And we're going to teach you what that is. Now, for listeners to the podcast, Andrew, some of the differences, I only need to say, of course, is that there are many, many boys walking around in men's bodies in the world. And some of them are running whole countries. uh, And, and, you know, the the sort of um, men who never grew up, (laughs) <laughs> and people can fill those gaps in themselves, but, but um, it's a terrible, terrible fact that, you know, if, if you're, you know, murdered or you're in a car crash or your, um, your country goes down a terrible path, it'll probably be because of a boy in a man's body that's doing that. And, you know, domestic violence perpetrators and, and rapists and, and terrible sorts of people are they're boys in men's bodies. And, and so how do we grow up our boys? And, and in, in our book, Manhood, and I'm sure you, you, you would have come across this, Andrew, we have some of Richard Rohr's mm. um, principles that, for instance, a boy thinks of himself first. Um, he's all about himself, mostly, and that's perfectly healthy in a boy. But the, the measure of a man is that he, that he puts others first and, um, and that he he enjoys his life, but his life is not about him. Um, and so that's an enormous challenge and and what they teach the boys in these right passage classes and experiences is if you want to be, if you want to be happy, if you want to earn the love of a partner, um, you've got to get off your own case and, um, and be willing to, to put other people first and, um, and, and the rewards of that, it's not, not, a sort of, not a kind of a preachy kind of a message. It's, that's where joy lies. Um, um, when you're just not that interested in meeting your own needs so, so directly, um, when you're willing to be unselfish and to, to think of others, then others will think of you. And, and you'll have a really good time. And so and it challenges the boys. And um, there are other messages, you know, you're going to die. Um, you, you haven't got forever. Um, life is hard. One of the t- most infantilizing messages of our culture is that if you just have enough money or pay your insurance or buy the right car or something, um, everything will be fine. And what I know as a psychologist, and I'm sure Andrew, you're you know, a wise elder in, in, in our community, in, in your job in, in the world. Um, that life can come out of the blue and do terrible things. And it's got nothing to do with um, choice. There's no, it's not to do with being a good or a bad person. The stuff just happens. And Mm. when we, when we had a miscarriage, um, and then a couple of times we've had very severe health challenges in our family and, and you just um, learn that that's, that's how it is. And you, you roll with that and, um, and you look after each other and you, you care for each other and so that you can recover from those things. Um, but if we don't let kids know that, then they'll be badly disillusioned and badly shocked. Um, and so you're saying to, you know, to a young parent, um, there will be times in your parenthood where you will be absolutely at the end of, of your um, tether, where you will feel like you cannot bear to go on. That's a normal feeling. Everyone has that sometimes with a new baby. Everyone has it with a, uh, a toddler. Everyone has that with a in 14-year-old son or a 15-year-old girl. Um, and then if you know that, um, it's still hard, but at you, you least you're well-equipped. And, and one of the amazing things, my, my working day, Andrew, is I, st- I rest during the daytime. And at nighttime, I go and talk to 800 people in an auditorium somewhere in the world. And that's what that's what I do for a living. And the incredible thing about doing those talks for mums and dads is that I look out at the audience and there'll be points in the evening where the, there's a couple of dozen people in tears. And no one else can see that because I'm the only one who's looking out at their faces. And the reason is, and then within seconds, the whole room will be in laughter as well. And it's a kind of a laughter of relief that... W- We're all in the same boat and everyone has been to this. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. You talk about some of the threats to good parenting and uh, in particular single out computer games and television as being what you call the enemies of soul. Uh, What do you mean by that and how do we get away from those enemies?
0: Oh, gosh, I... Um, I'm, that sounded like I was in a bit of a, one of my poetic um, frames of mind, Andrew. You've been dredging up stuff that I'm perhaps perhaps best buried. But um- oh, I don't know. I, I I feel like that about iPads. Uh, at least once a day. Oh yes. Well, um, again, I think um, what's what's important is that to think of okay, what is what are the things that do feed us? And um, for instance, um, nature. it turns out is there's very strong research that um, being in the outdoors, even just being around animals, having a pet in a family tends to make the whole family feel happier and more free. Kids that have animals. um, If you spend time in nature, um, one of the things we say is um, one parent in the family and one child. um, This comes from Professor uh, Bruce Robinson, who is one of my mentors, he he started the Fathering Project in in Perth in Western Australia, and Bruce says that you you have to have one to one time with your children, um, because uh, when you're in a whole family together, you have a kind of family dance that you do, and you and even you know, you go to Fiji or something for a big family treat, um, and you just still do your family dance when you're in Fiji, and it's it can be quite upsetting, um, and so. You can only be close to one person at a time. And so if you're listening to this program and if you've got one of your kids that is the one that's worrying you at the moment, and everyone will have one that they're just a bit worried about. As soon as you can organize it, take a couple of nights and go away with just you and that one child. So it might be dad and daughter, it might be mum and son or dad and son. But if you go away, just the two of you, one adult, one kid, over two nights, what will happen is that the problems between you will come to the surface. You'll have the conversations that you need to have. And it'll be kind of like taking out the garbage, Andrew. It's like the stuff that's built up that's been not quite right with you. Um, and you go for two nights, and so that um, the second day and the second night, you can have a really good time because you've got those things sorted out. And And there's something about, for kids, something about that specialness of where even if it's only two, you know, two nights of the whole year, they can draw on that memory, you know, just imagine what it's like, you know, say for a 14, 15 year old daughter to have complete, have a dad all to herself, no other sisters, no other brothers, just me and dad. And we had good talks and, we, and dad was really listened to my life and really heard about how my life is. She will carry that memory for years and years of that time that she put in. Um, and so it's, a, it's an amazing fix for a relationship. And, and of course, husbands and wives too, we really recommend um, as soon as your kids are old enough to be babysat or, or you know, go to grandmas or something, um, really important to have um, um, marriage repairing getaways for husbands and wives to do. And what will always happen, Andrew, this will make you smile, is there'll be a, a big argument on the first night um, because there's, everyone has sort of um, uh, kind of catch up fighting that they need to do, and so don't be so it doesn't mean that your marriage is over. Um, it just means that you've, you've collected a fair bit of garbage, and it 's time to put out the bins.
1: <laughs> you talk too about the role of chores, and, and you have this notion that uh, children should be brought up so that they can cook a full meal for the family by age 10. Uh, why is that important?
0: Yes. Now this is particularly relates to boys. And the, 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 there was some, some very good people, Celia Lashley, who was in New Zealand. She was a prison. Celia was a prison superintendent. She, ended up, she ran a large prison in New Zealand uh, and she's a part Maori woman. And she um, began to think, you know, this, you had a prison full of men. She said they're all there because they made a wrong choice in about a three minute span of time. And she decided she just didn't want people to go to prison. So she started looking into how do we make these boys who just don't think very well? And, and she began to, th- to think it's because we keep them babies in the family. And so she looked at um, what's the, how do we change that? And one of them is to stop waiting on them so much. And, you know, f- doing their laundry, having their neatly pressed things and making their school lunch for them. Um, really, they should be doing that. And so what I say in my talks is that um, at the age of nine, nine is the age when a boy's attention span overtakes that of a border collie. And, um, <laughs> and the border, anyone's got border collies, they get run over all the time. And, um, and so at age nine, a, you teach a boy, here's how you handle boiling water. Here's how you handle a sharp knife. Um, and 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 he cooks an evening meal for the family once a week so if you're listening to this if you have sons you're aiming for for once a week your son each of your sons is responsible for one of the, the dinners during that week and you start simple you know with pasta and bottled sauce but but by the time they're 12 you'll be aiming for you know roast lamb and vegetables and and um, the incredible thing is that, you know, you teach them how to do it. And so you're already, you know, spending time with them in a purposeful way. Um, they really, really take to this. Boys and food are a very natural combination. And so, um, and it's, it's this brilliant thing. And and you get a boy that goes out into the world um, and, he, and, and he can take care of himself. He can iron, he can sew, he can cook. Um, and we tease people. We say, you know... B- you need this because finding a woman who'll do it for you is increasingly difficult <laughs> and um, and and so you know this is this is the seeds of the family of the future where where men and women are much more equal and much more interchangeable in the tasks that they do and you know, if I could sum up in my biggest goal in in my working life, it was to be to um, to get dads to be really hands on confident parents and and We've succeeded in that. There have been studies of the time that dads put in, in their, with their children has trebled in between your generation and, and the young generation, Andrew. Um, we've trebled the amount of father time that's being spent. But dads spend a lot of time with their kids now, but they didn't used to do that. They used to come home and light a pipe and, and, and read the paper, and now they're, they're pushing prams. And they're around their kids, and it's a, it's the most brilliant thing. It has a real hope for the future.
1: We know sports good for uh, raising both boys and girls, but it can also turn into a, a, a contributor to that problem of, of rushing and uh, an overhurried lives that you mentioned at the uh, at the outset. Uh, how do we get the balance right between ensuring children are doing those sorts of good team sports, but not having them feel as though their lives are completely overscheduled?
0: Yes, I think we have to kind of wind back some of this, Andrew. The, I mean, these are good things that are just being taken too far, and and I think you know you mentioned driving a son to school at seven a.m. and th- that my kind of um, the hair prickled on my on my scalp when I heard that. Uh, that's mm. uh, um, good grief. Um, that means getting up at six a.m. and and um, and we know five if
1: you want to go for a run. Well, that's <laughs> right.
0: <And> so. Um, <laughs> Michael Carr who is is a, 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 a terrific psychologist, he he's um he studied adolescent sleep and um and there's some very strong findings that teenagers their sleep window, the time when they need best to be asleep for their brain development, is um to sleep until about nine in the morning. Um, that, that they naturally um, shift their back, they go, they and they don't really want to go to bed till ten or eleven. Um, and they don't want to wake till nine. And the reason for that is their brain is going through very big changes. And it's, their health requires them to sleep long hours. Um, and so schools that are getting kids in at seven are doing, they're damaging the brains of those adolescents. Now, there are schools in the world that are shifting their, their timetable. Um, and there are schools that are starting to not do morning stuff because of this. Um, and we're gonna have to get the word out about that. Um, Kids definitely. Sport is great thing. Um, it's 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 incredibly character building.
1: Just, just before you leave leave sleep, Steve. So since you since you've raised it, cause you do talk a lot about bed education and uh, and the need for adolescents to get nine hours of sleep a night. Uh, how do you, do you have other 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 tips on uh, on ensuring that your children sleep better if you can't move the starting time of their school?
0: Yes, I think the strongest one we we have. You you may not not know Andrew, but I have a a Facebook um, community, uh, a a Raising Boys community that's got 200,000 parents um, come on and and we talk about raising boys and we've got another one for girls. And I went on these pages a couple of years ago and I said, what is everyone doing about social media? Because this was emerging as a a mental health risk with kids. And, And people were sharing this thing, which in their families they're doing, which was to put their devices on the charger at dinner time um, and leave them there um, until the next morning. And, and I'm like saying, can you do that? And, um, and people were coming back from Ireland and the, the UK and a different European countries saying, yeah, everyone's doing that here now. We're all, you know, adults as well, everyone's iPod, everyone's iPhone device, they're all sitting on the kitchen bench we don't go near them, you know, from the start of dinner till the next morning. And our kids are really, really different. Um, they're more peaceful and more settled. Now, some of this is just simple science that those screens um, stimulate your eyes to think it's daytime and they, they make your sleep cycle not come on properly, that we really mm. should, we should be going to sleep, um, you know, not have bright lights um, once the sun goes down. Um, and, um, and so, but having a, a device right there in your face with it, with the colors that come off of a device screen, um, it sends a message into your melatonin system in your brain. It's daytime. It's the middle of the day, wake up. Um, and so if a kid folds their laptop away, puts their head down on the pillow, they're going to have trouble getting to sleep. And so better that, that, you know, you read a book, you have a dim light in your bedroom. Um, in the hour before bedtime, there's a lot of um, screen-free slowing down time. It's also a really good time for mums, you know, to go into bedrooms and, 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 and sort of, you know, and dads to read stories and, and mums to chat to kids about, you know, how was your day? And um, Bruce Robinson has a, a, um, a ritual that a lot of families do now of what was the, what was the worst thing that happened in your day-to-day um, talk about that a little bit and, and what was the best thing that happened all day, something you're really grateful for? And...
1: We have the rose, we call it the rose and the thorn exercise. You've heard of that, Andrew. One rose and one thorn from each boy at dinner time seems to, uh, seems to put them in a better place. Wow, I'm, that's, that's, a, that's a great way to put it. Yes, I'm glad you do that. So there's a lot of these international parenting models, Steve. I mean, there's the German Achtung baby, the French bringing up Bebe, the Chinese battle hymn of the tiger mother. Uh, do you draw inspiration from any of the international models? Are there some are there aspects of, of uh, any of the overseas parenting styles that you think Australian parents should learn from? Um, look, I... As a general rule,
0: Andrew, um, I stay as far away from parenting books as I possibly can. Um, <laughs> but occasionally you can't help but you know, read something in a newspaper or something like that. But um, I'm a very big fan of, for instance, of Finnish education. Um, in, 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 in fact, most European countries now, kids don't start school until they're about seven. Um, they have kindergartens and they have Play school preschools and forest schools and things like that, but they're absolutely all about play um, Because we know now that that most emotional self-regulation and, and a whole lot of actual skills learning is better acquired Not sitting at a desk not looking at a worksheet or a, a blackboard um, It's by running about with other kids or with, a, with a, some, a few kindly adults there to help it along and so in Finland and in Germany, nobody goes near a desk or a, a, a chair or um, any kind of formal work until they're seven. Um, and I think that's something we should learn from. They pay their teachers better. Um, they have no testing, none of this um, data-driven regulation. And, and again, I've just spent two days with uh, 60 of some of the, the best school teachers in this country, and they are in despair. I'm talking to people who are thinking of leaving teaching, because they are so harassed by filling in forms, um, doing paperwork, um, not being able to to do active or spontaneous things with the kids, that might be <clears throat> of a wonderful, if, if you look back to your um, school days, Andrew, I bet you can remember teachers who told, to, spent the whole class telling us some story about something, you know, that, that happened to them during World War II or something like that. And those, you know, I, I remember those stories. I don't remember any of the rivers of South America. Algebra has vacated my mind. Um, and so um, we've, we've really damaged education. Um, and it's not the teachers, it's the bureaucrats, it's the politicians who've, who've brought in that lack of trust in, in the, letting the professionals do what they know is best. Um, I think we need to get... Um, get that get bureaucracy out of schools.
1: You have uh, in your uh, the titles of your books and the books themselves quite a, uh, a strong emphasis on gender differences. Uh, and that contrasts with someone like Cordelia Fine, who argues in her book Delusions of Gender, that uh, we impose gender upon children. Uh, and that if we walked around raising children saying, hey, left-hander, go and play with the right-handers. There's a good left-hander. There's a good right-hander. Then handedness would become more salient to children. So she argues gender is much more a socially constructed notion that's that's uh, imposed upon children. Implicit in what I take from your books is that it's got a stronger genetic component. Uh, I was wondering if, if you think that gender does have a strong genetic component does that also mean that that you'd think that many other things have more of a genetic component? And and if that's true, would you maybe be a little more modest about what great parenting could achieve?
0: Okay, that's a really um, thought-out question, Andrew, and and I'd I'd love to address that. Now, first thing to say is um, there's not such a big difference between me and Cordelia. And um, we both would say that that there's an enormous amount of gender baggage that is put onto children and that it's really, really fantastic how we've, we're learning not to do that. And we're not, you know, we're learning not to say big boys don't cry. And we, we're learning to, to, to say that girls can do anything they choose to do in this world. And, and Mm. the gender itself is a continuum. And, and so that there are people all over that, that continuum. And when you have a, you know, if you have a little boy and you know that the nurse says to you, you've got a boy, that tells you absolutely nothing about the kind of person he's going to be. You have to find out what sort you've got. Now, having said that, at the same time, and we've got a lot of new science that's written in the back of the Raising Boys book, because this is all come, keeps coming out all the time. There are generalizations that we can make that, that work most of the time. For example, um, testosterone, and, and Cordelia wrote a second book called Testosterone Rex, where she wrestled with this and began to realize more of what was going on. For instance, if a little baby boy, if, if they take a, um, a sample of the cord blood, umbilical cord blood from little boys when they're born, they'll find that there are very varied levels of testosterone. And in fact, there are, there are high testosterone boys and there are low testosterone boys. And so some boys are more masculinized than others, uh, even just within the male gender, Andrew, if that makes sense. And and so, and of course, if you think about the women that you know, there's a very wide um, spectrum of women and a lot of overlap between men and women. Now, one of the things that's been a very persistent problem for boys is reading. Um, There are very many boys who are, are... very hard to teach to read and have difficulties reading and, and a lot of those boys end up in jail. And, and so somebody combined the research and they found that the problem reader boys are nearly always the high testosterone babies. And so it may be that um, one of the gender traits, which is stronger in some kids, makes it harder for those boys to be articulate, good with words, and so the way where my books come in, and I think the reason that, you know, millions of people um, embrace the message of my books was that they recognize this instinctively, that um, we want to make a man for the modern world. You know, the world doesn't need men who can wrestle buffaloes anymore. It, it, wants, mm. more. it wants men who, who can speak from the heart, uh, who are empathic and, and can express themselves. And so if you've got a little baby boy at home Talk to him and cuddle him and chatter, and when he's a bit older, read him stories and help him to make sure that you make up for the natural male difficulty that he has with language. Um, uh, Of course, do that with your daughters as well, but in a boy, it might be life saving that you do that. Um, And again, the, at the age of four, little boys have a hormonal change. Um, they produce a luteinizing hormone in their in their body that's starting to set down the the testes and the, and the testosterone sources in in their in their bodies, ready for beginning to get ready for puberty. And so you'll experience many people experience a thing called the full on fours, where boys are just rambunctious and they want to run around and. In the schools of 50 years ago, we would have called them bad boys and we would have caned them. And, you know, Christian brothers would have belted them and, and strapped them and, and, and it would have been a really bad experience for those kids. But what we now know, and, and mums have come up to me in the street in London and, and in Germany and places and said, thank you so much for letting me know that they weren't bad. They were, mm-hmm. just, they were just boys. Um, and Cordelia would want me to add, and some girls are like that too. And, you know, they won't want to sit still and do embroidery at a table. They'd like to be at climbing trees as well. Um, and so as long as we can embrace those, the fact of, you, you know, we don't put them in boxes, but if you've got a boy, you know, at, at the age of eight, um, there's another hormonal shift in boys. It was, this was discovered by Australian researchers. Um, that, that boys become very emotional at the age of eight and and have a kind of a volatility. And again, it's caused by some hormones that are starting to move towards adulthood. Um, and it's a little bit very similar to what a girl will have when when puberty begins. But it, this begins four years before puberty. There's no equivalent in girls to this until much later. But those boys will find they, they burst into tears very easily or They'll, their friend will say something, and they'll just turn and punch their friend in the side of the head. And 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 you'll talk to your son that night, and he'll be a bit upset, a bit quiet, and and you say, "What's wrong?" He said, oh, "I, I don't know. I just flew off the handle. I punched my best friend, you know, at school, and I got in trouble." And 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 you say, "Well, look, um, I've been reading in this book. Um, eight is an age when sometimes that happens. So it's your it's your hormones and." Um, it doesn't mean that you, it's an excuse. and doesn't mean that, you know, maybe you had a reason to be angry, but you know, this might be going on with you and, and a big sigh of relief all around that you're not mad and you're not bad. You're, it's just, these are some of the things we're only just discovering about how amazing our bodies are. Um, and with, with girls, they have, uh, you know, as we said, they, they don't have puberty. They have puberty about two years younger than boys do. Um, and, and that's something we have to navigate, boys don't, boys are idiots at that age, and girls have suddenly turned into goddesses, and they don't, they don't get on very well, you know. And, um, and some, I work in some terrific schools, there's a school um, in, uh, on the north shore of Sydney, I'm I, sorry, the name doesn't come to mind right now, but it's a school where they always separate the kids in the, um, in the classroom. Um, it's a co-ed school, but when you go to your classroom, you go, the boys go to one and the girls go to another. Um, and that's a, the, the, I talked to the kids in that school. They really love that because they say we can mix and we can, uh, you know, enjoy each other's company in the, in the, in the playground, but the, the classroom is a safe space. We can concentrate. Um, you don't feel the self-conscious, um, uh, we can, the teacher can match the lesson to our needs, um. And in that way, um, it's it's a brilliant way of around that 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 disjuncture that happens with the different timetable of those of the genders.
1: Hmm. Steve, what advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: <laughs> go and, go and do some courses in how to talk to girls. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, um, no, I think. Um, gosh that's I I don't I, yes I have to really think about that Andrew I think um relax um you'll find your you'll find your tribe um but in fact m- m- Andrew my teens were were pretty good I I was I went to a government high school we had wonderful teachers we did the Duke of Edinburgh's award
1: um um it's a great scheme
0: yeah and 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 I think because of that some of the teachers got to know us better and took more, you know, we got to Mm. meet outside of the classroom. Um, My parents were lovely. They, my parents were pretty confused by my teenage years because of the Asperger stuff, but, but they they didn't mean that, you know, still were kind to me and, and, and put food on the table and, and, you know, they didn't put me in a home or call the police or anything. Um, And so, yeah, uh, Tina, adolescence wasn't too bad
1: what's something you used to believe but no longer do are there ways in which your views of parenting have changed since you first started writing books on the topic
0: oh yes a a, a lot of um well i used to believe that stuff about gender i used to believe that um it was all socially conditioned um we were all right into that in the 1970s andrew that was the that was the way everyone was hoping that was true um because it would have made life a whole lot simpler um Oh gosh! I used to believe that people who ran countries were good people um, and knew what they were doing. Um, I used to believe that the world would go on forever and and now you know as a as a grandfather i climate change and the climate emergency is the very focus of my time and my energies um, i'm now i 'm doing my talks around the the world i to raise money for for climate activism for for I'm, I'm a big part of helping the school student strikes that have been going on and um i belong to a christian climate action and a number of of interfaith groups on climate I, I i always i believed as a kid that we would always have nature and always have you know a, a better future um, and now it's, it's, I'm a scientist and uh, the science is very clear. We might not reach 2100. There was something that came out a couple of days ago. Um, very um, good science, very, very peer-reviewed science, that if we don't change the world in 2100, when my granddaughters will, I would like to think, would be alive, um, will only support a, one billion people that are a heated up world will only have enough agriculture to feed 1 billion. Now, people listening will know we have 7 billion now. Um, What lies between a population of 7 and a population of 1 is not something you really want to think about. And that's very solid solid science. Um, It's not polar bears that we need to worry about. It's because the face of climate change is basically war. When food runs out, you get war. And and that's the that's the, going to be the picture of the 21st century and so all of my efforts now and my fundraising my writing um are tilted now towards please please wake up um please listen to the science exactly what that wonderful um swedish girl greta thunberg is saying please listen yes. to the science yes um science is what makes the planes fly it's what makes the phones work and the, and you know it 's how you had a safe birth. science is a reality if you don't, if you don 't listen to the science, even if it 's you know an inconvenient um, message um, then uh, we 're doomed uh, and um, and so I, I in some ways can 't quite believe that we 're even talking about this andrew you know we 're sitting here talking about the end of the human race and um, and it's a, a thing, and I think one of the great things about that that's young Swedish girl was because she has autism. And what autism does is it makes you, you don't have a herd instinct. And so you go on pure logic. And pure logic says, you know, the house is on fire. We need to, to go and do something about that. Um, and I'm hopeful that we, the human race, we are rather good in a crisis. You know, my parents talk about World War II Everyone, everyone pulled together. Um, it was, a, it was a, it was a close run thing. And Australia has, you know, Australia contributed 1% of the dead, the allied dead in world war II. That's, you know, we made a small contribution, but it might've made all the difference. And so when I hear people saying, Oh, well, you know, Australia is not, you know, doesn't matter what Australia does. Um, it really, really matters. Um, we're the third biggest em- exporter of fossil fuels. It matters enormously what we do. Um, and so I th- I, the only model I have in my mind is, is you know, what my parents came through was, was global war. Um, and I think it's, it's World War C now. Um, if you're a parent, your primary job is for your kids to be alive long after you're gone. My job as a grandfather is the same. And yeah.
1: Steve, uh, when are you most happy?
0: oh gosh i think in my garden um looking after my veggies but hearing my wife and and daughter laughing in the distance i think is a pretty joyful place Uh, i i it's i'm a i'm a a sort of old-fashioned guy and i'm only really happy if if the people i I love are happy as well um but but i'd be outdoors and i'd be enjoying the, the, the the fact that they're whatever it's making them, hoping it's not me that's making them laugh, although half the time it probably is.
1: <laughs> What's the most important thing you do to keep yourself mentally and physically healthy?
0: Yeah, that would be gardening. Um, I love growing food. Um, I love yoga. I love, I love swimming. I, I, I love affection. I love having a loving spouse. Um, and um, yeah, everything is all part of the mix.
1: Do you have any guilty pleasures?
0: No, no. No, I think um, if, if, it's, if it's a pleasure, it's something that should be allowed.
1: <laughs> so you're guilt-free rather than pleasure-free there. Steve Biddle, keeper of the secret to happy children, thank you for joining us in the Good Life podcast today.
0: Thanks for those great questions, Andrew. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you enjoyed this conversation, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Dalton Connolly, Emily Oster and Jonathan Haidt. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on your favourite social media platform. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.